It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Huh, well, Eric mentioned this yesterday for those who are uh, listening to this via video or audio, but we're in the middle of a week-long, uh, which already feels way too fast. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but it's like, wow, the days are going by really quick. Uh, but in my series, uh, Eric again is walking through World War I, uh, I've been walking through a series called Soul Drift, and uh, over the last, I don't know how long it's been, eight, nine weeks or so, uh, we've been talking through this idea of what, what are we called to as believers, and then how have we drifted from that? And so just even as a, as a quick review, uh, I spent the first several weeks talking through the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in that we were talking about this idea that we are called to an exclusive devotion where we love God with all that we are and all that we have. And the last several weeks we've been talking about this idea of idolatry, and, and here's been my definition of idolatry. Idolatry is looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. And if, <clears throat> if you missed all those past episodes, uh, you're welcome to catch up if you want to <laughs> spend some time doing that. <clears throat> but it's interesting, uh, one of the things I really enjoy and dislike about Bible study is the fact that as you get into a particular topic, you, you find that God consistently goes beyond your expectations. He's always revealing more and more stuff to you. And in so doing, you realize how little you know. <laughs> so, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're just like, all right, uh, for, for example, I, I decided since we're in the middle of a week long, uh, we've been talking about idolatry, but I didn't want to like start a whole other concept because we're going to start the five week next week. And I thought, well, it'd be a little weird if they get er, kind of jerked in the middle of something. So I said, okay, well, for these, for these two episodes that I have, these two sessions this week, I, I wanted to build upon what we've been talking about with idolatry and kind of come at it from a different angle, and that way, starting next week, we can do something slightly different, even though it's still in tandem. And so what I wanted to do is look at this idea of, of altars. Uh, this actually was the main reason I even jumped into this series, is about a year ago, I was listening through some stuff, and I was pondering this idea of altars. And with that came this idea of idolatry and, and just kind of outflow from there. And I just began to say, okay, well, what does that mean practically uh, for my life? And it's been, it's been interesting. I've been so wrapped up in the idolatry stuff. That sounds horrible. But I've been wrapped up in the concept of idolatry that I was like, I don't even know if I'll get to the altars. And so anyway, so we're, we're going to talk about altars for these two episodes, this and then the one that's coming up on Thursday. But again, this is one of those topics that uh, I was like, you know what? I know what an altar is. I, I, mean, I grew up in a church where we had altars. Anybody have like altars at the front of the church? You know, you come and you know, there's, there's like the wedding altar. Uh, there's an altar where you know, we had prayer time, so you come to the altar and pray. But as I began to get into this, this got suddenly a little bit bigger and deeper and more confusing than I thought it was. <laughs> so we're just going to look at this, a broad view. Because uh, I'm realizing there's so much more to this and I have some key questions I still have no answers to. And I, I have, over the last, I don't know, week or so, I don't know how many scholars I have read trying to seek out certain answers, saying, does anybody talk? Because I, I cannot find certain resolutions for my soul with certain concepts. 
So I've just been reading a whole bunch of people, just seeing if they have anything. I can't, I can't find stuff that I'm looking for uh, or an answer to questions that I have. But what I thought I'd do in this particular episode is just talk about altars as a general sense. And I, I presume that you know what an altar is, and yet I want to reacquaint you with what an altar is. And then in the next episode, I want to dive in very specifically and talk about it, one particular uh, altar. So you ready, ready for this? Uh, here's what one Bible dictionary said in terms of altars. This is how a simple definition they defined it as. It's a structure used in worship as the place for presenting sacrifices to God or gods. So that's a really simplistic definition. It's just a place used in worship for presenting sacrifices. But if you want a little bit broader perspective, let me just, I want to give you a definition from one of the Bible dictionaries because it outlines kind of a good overview as well as the types of altars that were found in Scripture. So here's, here's what one of the dictionaries said. The Hebrew word for altar that is used most frequently in the Old Testament, by the way, it's like 400 and something times, is formed from the verb for slaughter. and means literally the slaughter place. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> Just hilarious. Uh, altars were used primarily as places of sacrifice, especially animal sacrifice. While animals were a common sacrifice in the Old Testament, altars were also used to sacrifice grain, fruit, wine, and incense. Altar is distinct from temple, whereas temple implies a building or a roof structure. Sorry, one second. Yeah, I was like, the other one's melting down too. Just kidding. We just pushed the wrong button. So altar is distinct from temple. Uh, whereas the temple implies a building or a roof structure, the altar implies an open structure. Altar and temple were often adjacent, though not all altars had a temple adjacent. The reference to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, if you remember that story from Genesis 22, may indicate that, anim that the animal to be sacrificed was placed on the altar alive, but bound and slaughtered on the altar. Uh, such may have been the earliest practice. By the time of the Levitical, Levitical law, so during the time of Moses, the animals were slaughtered in front of the altar, dismembered, and only fatty portions to be burned were placed on the altar, according to Leviticus chapter 1. In the Old Testament, altars were distinguished by the material, material used in their construction. So here are four different kinds of altars that we find in Scripture. So the simplest altars were perhaps, and perhaps the oldest, were earthen altars. You can see that, see that like in Exodus 20, 24. This type of altar was made either of mud brick or raised roughly, or a raised, wow, this is hard to say. The type, this type, let me just start over. This type altar that makes no sense. Anyway, this type of altar was made of either mud brick or a raised, roughly shaped mound of dirt. I don't know why that was so difficult. The stone altar is the most commonly mentioned altar in the biblical records. So this is number two. And most frequently found in excavations from, from Israel. A single large stone could serve as an altar. And there's a whole bunch of passages if you want to look them up. Or unhewed stones could be carefully stacked to form an altar. Such stone altars were probably the most common form of altar prior to the building of the Solomon's temple. So the third type of altar mentioned in the Old Testament is the bronze altar. The central altar in the court of Solomon's temple was a bronze altar. Its dimensions were about 30 feet square and 15 feet high. Could you imagine an altar for sacrifice? 30 feet by 30 feet times 15 feet in the air. This is a massive structure that they use for sacrifice. And a fourth type of altar is the gold altar or the altar of incense. 
It was located in the inner room of the sanctuary just outside the Holy of Holies. And the incense served as a means of purification after slaughtering animals, a costly sacrifice, and also a sweet-smelling offering that would be pleasing to God. So, in other words, what it's talking about is this idea that when we look at altars throughout the Old Testament, you find that they were often associated with animal sacrifices. You find that they were typically made of one of four types of materials, so either earth, like they just piled up some earth, or they grabbed stones, which was the most popular one, or they did the bronze thing, or gold. So those are the kind of altars. Is that making sense? For three of you? Okay, good. So that being said, let me give you seven things that, and there's probably more than this, but as I was going through this idea of altars and looking at how altars were used, here are seven ways that altars are used throughout the Old Testament. And I'll just give you a bunch of references really quick. So I'm just going to throw a bunch of these to you. If you don't have time to write down the references, you can watch the video later or ask me for the notes. Uh, so number one, an altar is a place where the spiritual and the physical worlds intersected. I thought this was interesting. Here's a quote by one of the scholars. He says, Altars were places where the divine and human worlds interacted. Altars were places of exchange, communication, and influence. Isn't it interesting that when you, when you come to the very beginning of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, there actually is no need for an altar. And the reason being is that there's actually intimacy and communication freely between God and Adam and Eve. So you have Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the garden, and God is there with them. And so there's no need for an altar. And yet what you find is after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, suddenly we need a place to beseech the Lord. We, we need a place to interact with God. And so what you begin to find is that there are these locations where God would show up and we would either have communication or instruction or insight. And so they would build an altar there. Does that make sense? So there's this interaction idea between the spiritual realm and the physical realm and that place was often associated with an altar. In other words, if God met us somewhere, let's build an altar there to celebrate and commemorate the fact that God was right here. So it's this interaction thing of the spiritual uh, and the physical. For example, in Genesis 12, 7, it says that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So Abraham, or Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. See, this was one of those places where the spiritual and the physical interact and so they set up an altar. And therefore, closely related with this idea is this idea that it's a place of memorial. So wherever God meets us, oh, we want to memorialize and remember this is a location where God has met us. For example, in Genesis 35, it says that God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God says, hey, Jacob, you remember how you wrestled with me at this place called Bethel? I want you to go back there, and I want you to build an altar. Well, why am I building an altar there, God? So you remember this is the place where I met with you. It becomes a memorial. And it goes on, and he says that, So Jacob come to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because God had revealed himself to him, when he fled from his brother. It's really interesting. Bethel, by the way, means the house of God. So he called the place El Bethel, meaning God, the place of God. It's kind of a neat name. Uh, Exodus 17 uh, has a similar idea. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. 
that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. So this location then, this altar, becomes a memorial that every time we go past it, we go, oh, God met us right here. Have you ever done that in your own life, by the way? You have these like locations where God moved mightily upon your life or brought salvation or just did a deep work, and you're just like, yeah, that, that location, oh, God met me right there. See, that, that's this kind of an idea. A third way the altar is used is, is a place to beseech the Lord. So I, I have a question, I have a concern, I, I need something, and so what do I do? I come to an altar, typically with a sacrifice, to say, Lord, I need, I need an answer, I need clarity, I need wisdom, I need whatever it may be. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, it says that Abraham proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So here's Abraham, he builds this altar, and then he says, Lord, I need you. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. So again, this altar is associated with this idea of beseeching the Lord. You have this idea with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So the, the land has kind of been corrupted by paganism and, and all, the, all the idols, and so Elijah brings the prophets of Baal together on Mount Carmel. And listen to what Elijah says to the people. He says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. Now let them give us two ox, oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it upon the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, it's a good idea. So as you go on with this, it says that uh, so with the stones, Elijah built an altar in the name of the Lord. And at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. What is Elijah doing? He's building an altar. He's rebuilding that which has fallen down and broken down. And he's beseeching. He's calling on God. A fourth way an altar is used is that it's a place of offering sacrifice. This is probably the most common and probably makes the most sense to us is that you have this idea that, well, when I have an altar, I come and I bring a sacrifice, whatever that sacrifice may be. In Deuteronomy, <clears throat> Moses is reminding the Israelites about what they have done over the last 40 years in the, in the wilderness. And he's reminding them of God's laws. And one of those things is he's walking through the tabernacle saying, do you remember how God gave us the command to build a tabernacle and all the things in the tabernacle, including the altar? And in the midst of this, Moses says in Deuteronomy 27, Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. So he's reminding the Israelites, look, the altar is a place of sacrifice, of offering, of, of rejoicing. In 1 Chronicles 21, David, uh, it's in the middle of that scene where the plague is happening, but it says that David built an altar to the Lord there, 
And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he called to the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And so you see all throughout the Old Testament then that when you come to the altar, it was a place of offering. It was a place of thanksgiving. Not, not just a sin atonement kind of a thing, though that was often there, right? We, we gave our lambs or our goats or our, uh, our cattle, right, as, as, a, as, an, as a sin covering, as, a, as giving the blood for atonement. But it's also a place of rejoicing. It's a place of thanksgiving that, oh, God's done so much in my life, so what am I going to do? I'm going to come and bring an offering before the Lord, and I bring it to the altar. So all, all of that, and you start seeing that over and over and over uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the altar is also a place of worship. In Deuteronomy 27, I, I just read this, but listen to this again. Moses says, You shall build the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. So one of the things you start seeing associated with the altar is that it is a place of rejoicing, of praise, of worship, of thanksgiving. In Psalm 43, 4, it says, Then I will go up to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. So hey, as I come up to the altar of the Lord, what am I doing? Praising. I'm worshiping. I'm giving thanksgiving. In 2 Chronicles, I, I love this story. Here's Solomon, and he, and he builds his temple. right? So David had this design of the temple. David finances the temple, but Solomon builds the temple. And in 2 Chronicles 4, it says that Solomon made a bronze altar, and this is that 30 feet by 30 feet by 15 feet high. And as you come to chapter 5, they are beginning to dedicate the temple uh, unto the Lord. And it says that the Solomon assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So here's Solomon. He takes the ark and he's bringing it into the temple which he had built for the Lord. And of course, in the middle of all this, there is this bronze altar. And so you see the people gathering in the outer courts and what you begin to see as, as you're walking through the story, I'm just giving you quick highlights. It says that King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Which has to be a lot. Because you read in other stories where they're sacrificing tens of thousands of animals and they have a count. So I have no idea how many animals you have to kill before you lose count but it has to be over the tens of thousands because they they were at least counting up to the tens of thousands in other passages this is could you imagine the blood that was flowing from this altar could you imagine this the smell <laughs> at this that, oh. but all of this is happening now in the midst of all of this there is great rejoicing why are they sacrificing so many animals because they dearly love their god and what you begin to see is that as Solomon begins to dedicate the temple, there is so much praise and adoration and worship and thanksgiving. It says this later in chapter 5. It says, In unison with the trumpeters and the singers, they were able to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good for His loving kindness. His hesed is everlasting. Then the house and the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister before or to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What a, what a scene. And then it says in chapter 7, this is after Solomon gives the prayer of dedication and, and this place of worship. 
It says, now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. So the altar becomes associated with this idea of worship. Uh, It's also a place of consecration. That you have this idea that the altar is a place of holiness. Which is why there were all these commands for the Levites that as they would come onto the altar to do sacrifices, that there were certain requirements. They had to wear certain clothing. Uh, they, They couldn't have blemishes. They couldn't be sick because that would defile or make something unholy. So it's interesting, for example, like in Exodus 29, it says, For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. So the altar itself is consecrated. It's set apart. It's marked by holiness. But what you begin to see is that there's this theme that runs through the Old Testament that when I come to the altar, one of the reasons I come to the altar is that it's a place where I dedicate myself. It's a place where I lay all that I am and all that I have before the Lord, saying, here I am. I I am consecrating my life unto you. Have everything. And let me just give you one illustration of that. Genesis 22. Here's Abraham, and God has asked for something very specific for Abraham's one and only son. And it says that they came to the place at which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So here's Abraham on the hill of Jerusalem, about to sacrifice Isaac, his only begotten son. And it's this act of consecration. It's an act of, Lord, you asked for it. I'm giving you everything. And Hebrews tells us, though, Abraham had never seen someone raised from the dead. Abraham knew his God to the point where he says, Lord, if you are asking for my son, I know this is the promise. Because you said he was the promise, which means even if I have to slay, you will bring him back to life. That's a lot of trust in his God. And lastly, could I propose to you that an altar is a place of utmost importance? The more I've been pondering this idea of altar, the the idea of the altar, the more I'm realizing how important and significant it is. Here's what one of the scholars said. After the exile, so after they went to Babylon and they returned, the first thing to to be rebuilt was not the temple. It was the altar. Then the temple was reconstructed. And so the scholar says the temple was ultimately secondary to the altar. And that makes me feel weird. Because isn't the temple the really important thing? Isn't the temple like the most important thing? No, apparently it was the altar. Why? It's because the altar is where we have the sacrifices. Altar is where we have the communion. Altar is where we have the consecration. Altar is where we... It's interesting, when you look at the pagan cultures that surrounded Israel, they often set up altars and, and idols. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is over and over and over again, Israel was being wooed away from Yahweh to pursue foreign gods. 
to erect these altars and to sacrifice to these pagan gods, these false gods. Just looking at a couple of the kings, you have King Ahaz in 2 Kings 16, where he goes up to Damascus, and in Syria he sees the altar that they had and is so impressed by this Syrian altar that he comes back into Jerusalem and builds an altar in the house of the Lord. So in the, in the temple construct, this is some years after Solomon, between the bronze altar and the, the most holy place, Ahaz builds a pagan altar in the middle of the temple courts. Uh, you have this King Manasseh, where in 2 Kings, listen to what it says about King, King Manasseh, is a very evil, wicked king. But it says about him, he says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Ashtoreth and Ahab, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So here is Manasseh literally going into the holy place, not, not the holy of holies, presumably, but in the inner courts, and setting up altars there for pagan gods. You, you have this pull all throughout the Old Testament of what is happening in the culture around them begins to allure, to woo the hearts of Israel, and they go, yes, I'm going to go worship on that altar as well. You also see the opposite of that with King Josiah, and sorry, it's a little blurry at the bottom here, but in an act of reform and revival, he tore down the altars of Manasseh and Jeroboam in 2 Kings 23. So what you see is that the altar isn't just this thing. There actually is a grave importance with the altar. That if I set up an altar to an idol, it will pull me. Well, how do we get revival in the land? Well, Josiah tore down the false altars. But even beyond all that, look at this. In Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel 43, do you realize that his heavenly vision contains an altar? In John, when he's instructed to measure out the temple in the new Jerusalem, in the, in the, you know, the new heavens, new earth stuff, in Revelation 11, do you realize there's still an altar there? That the altar hasn't gone away. That there is still an altar around. There will be an altar. Uh, in Revelation 8.3, it says that the prayers of the saints are mentioned on the golden altar before the throne of God. So, presumably then, in heaven, you have God's throne, and there's still an altar. Isn't that a weird thought? And for whatever reason, I guess in my head, I thought, well, well Jesus is here. We no longer need the altar stuff. And it's true, we don't need the altar for atonement. The, the price has been paid. His blood was shed once and for all, and we do not need to keep giving lambs and goats and, and cattle. Praise the Lord. Because <laughs> if we had to keep doing that, we have some problems. Because our carpet would be a mess right now. So it's true, we don't need altars for the sense of atonement, but do you realize that the altar is still a place of thanksgiving and offering and worship and it seems like even into the eternities there's still going to be an altar there's a need for an altar of worship can i propose to you that out of all of that throughout the throughout the scriptures 
there is one altar above all other altars? I, I love this statement. I, I read this by one of the scholars, and I just want to give this to you. He's harkening back in the Old Testament. He says this, the sacred altar and its horns, because you know most of the altars had these horns on the, on the corners. It's where the atoning blood was splashed and it provided a place of sanctuary, a place of safety. The altar was a place where an unintentional murderer could gain a haven. So I, I didn't mean to, but I accidentally killed someone. I could literally run and grab a hold of the horns of the altar and find safety, find salvation. If the murder was premeditated, however, then the altar was clearly profaned by the murderer's presence, and the individual could be taken away and killed. Joab was denied the sanctuary of the horns because he conspired to kill Amasa and Abner. And an oracle against Israel in Amos 3.14, listen to this, God declared that the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. The message is clear. There will be no place to intercede with God, no place to claim his sanctuary. And you need to go back in the context of Amos, but, it, but it's interesting that, that God is referencing this idea of the altar. And he says, look, the altar is that place where you could always run and find safety and salvation and hope. But because of your wicked sin, I'm, I'm going to cut it all off. You, you will not have that opportunity. But ponder this. The writer of Hebrews makes an interesting statement about our Jesus. It says in Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The writer of Hebrews says there's actually an altar above all other altars. There is actually a great altar that we have access to. Now, I, I love the writer of Hebrews. He's constantly referring back to the Old Testament and saying, see that? Oh, it's all about Jesus. See that? That's all about Jesus. And we find out in the book of Hebrews that that Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the lamb. He's our sacrificial lamb. But he's also the high priest giving the sacrifice. So he's the lamb. He's the sacrifice. He's the one sacrificing. He's also the place of sacrifice. So here's what one of the scholars said about this. I just love this. The New Testament writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13.10, implies that the ultimate altar is the cross. Here, ponder this. The divine and human exchange is consummated, and the cross becomes the sanctuary of the believer, providing protection from the penalties of sin. So just as the altar of the Old Testament, you could run and grab the horns and find salvation, find hope. Do you realize we actually have that permanently in the cross of Christ and what he did upon that cross? That you don't have to just go run into a building and hold to the horns of an altar and as long as you're holding that, no one can come in and kill you. But do you realize we are full of sin? But there is a means of salvation. There is a means of hope and rescue. What is it? The cross. And it is the altar of altars. It is the place of greatest hope. And when you look at what an altar was throughout Scripture, do you realize all of it pertains to the cross? That the cross is the place where the spiritual and physical worlds intersect? that what was happening physically on the cross of Christ was actually affecting not just the physical, it's also affecting the spiritual. And we have physical freedom and spiritual freedom because of the cross of Christ. That, that, it, that the cross is a place of memorial, 
that that's where we meet God himself. That the cross is the place to beseech the Lord. It's a place of offering and sacrifice. It's a place of worship. It's a place of consecration. And it's a place of utmost importance. There is an altar above all altars. It's the cross. It's Christ. So let me just end with this. Can I propose to you that we need an altered altar? We, we don't typically have the quote-unquote altars of the Old Testament that we do the physical sacrifices on. But do you realize that every single one of this, us has an altar that we will worship something upon? It's called our hearts. You will worship something. There is an altar in your life. It's called your heart. And you are pursuing something with all of your heart. You are turning to something for rest. You are looking for something for peace. You are turning to something for hope. And it may be entertainment. It may be social media. It may be relationships. It may be drugs. It may be sex. There's a whole myriad of things that you can turn to, but all of us will worship something because we are made to worship. And culture is worshiping, folks. The whole culture is wrapped up in this idolatry of worship, and we're all putting something upon the altars of our heart. Can I ask you, what are you worshiping? In in the next session, I really want to dive deeper into this idea of the altar of the heart. And so we'll flesh this out a little bit more in the next one. But can I just ask this question? Here's this definition of an altar again. It was a structure used for worship as the place for presenting sacrifice. You have one of those in your life. So here's the question. What are you worshiping on the altar of your heart? What are you turning to? And is it it possible that your altar needs to be altered? That it needs to go through a transformation? That it needs to be changed? That whatever you've been placing upon the altar of your heart actually needs to be removed and purified and cleansed so that that which is upon the altar of your heart is Christ. And we are pursuing Him with an exclusive devotion that there is no idolatry. We're not sipping salt water. We are running headlong into the realities of Christ. And we are loving Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. That is the calling on our lives to have an exclusive devotion to Him, and we are worshiping and loving Him with everything. What are you worshiping? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this, this may not be true for everybody, but it certainly is true for me. Lord, I need You to alter my altar. That my heart needs transformation. Lord, what would it look like if I turned to you for rest and for peace and for hope and for joy and nothing, nothing, I would turn to nothing outside of you to satisfy me. And Lord, it's not even that the things that I turn to are bad. Hey, relationships are good.
religious stuff is good. But Lord, so oftentimes we can so wrap our lives around things that they become the things that we worship. That they are the things that we turn to rather than you. Lord, could we, like Mary of Bethany, take our alabaster, alabaster jar of spikenard and dump it upon your feet? Lord, may you and you alone be our object of worship. And Lord, any of the, the things that we have set up in our lives, even if they are good things, Lord, could you, could you do such a deep work in our hearts? Would you alter our altar to a point where you and you alone receive all the worship and all the adoration and all the praise and all the love of our lives? Lord, may we have an exclusive devotion and passionate love for you alone. Lord, we need you. We do love you. And Lord, we want to worship you this morning. We do want to set our hearts upon you. Lord, we don't want to sing words. Lord, we don't want to go through a duty. Lord, could we worship that somehow our hearts be set upon your face and in the midst of beholding you, we'd be just overwhelmed by the reality of Christ that something would bubble up within us and we just can't help ourselves. Not to sing, but oh, to worship. So Lord, would you, would you stir our hearts and make the idols crush the idols of our life, and will you turn this altar of our heart into a place where we can worship and love you alone? We love you, Jesus. We just give you all the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.